Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is U.S. women's national team legend Hope Solo. We've had some great guests lately, including Felipe Cardenas, Flavio Sveter, and Ricardo Fort, and Matt Turner, so check those out. We're also doing post-game instant reactions to every U.S. game from the Gold Cup with Chris Whittingham and the Olympics with Christine Cupo. So be sure to subscribe for all that. But first, let's talk. U.S. men's national team won Jamaica nil. U.S. advances to the Gold Cup semis to meet guest team Qatar on Thursday. It's Mexico-Canada in the other semi. Chris Whittingham has the night off after a crazy weekend calling games. So I'm flying solo here, but... Let's spend a few minutes talking about this game because there are a few things to digest. Hard game for the U.S. Matthew Hoppy scores the game's only goal in the 83rd minute off a nice cross from Christian Roldan, who'd come on as a second-half sub. And Andre Blake, not covering himself in glory on this one, comes out to try and get the cross, doesn't get it. Hoppy's header goes in. Nice little run by Jossie's artist to create some space for Matthew Hoppy to get to that ball. And I think in the end it was a deserved result, but there were large portions of this game that Jamaica did control. Uh, And that's something that the U.S. is going to need to work on as they head into this semifinal. Uh, Difficult game in a lot of ways. Not any great chances on goal for the Jamaicans, a couple of decent stops by Matt Turner for the U.S. here. Matthew Hoppy, probably the most dangerous U.S. forward in this game from the start, had a couple really hard shots saved by Blake before he finally did score. But I thought Hoppy provided a lot of energy in this game that the U.S. was sorely lacking. One of the things I tweeted about at one point was this is a very polite U.S. men's national team in this Gold Cup, I wish it were less so, you know? I wish that sort of bite that Weston McKinney has was uh, a little more present in this U.S. team. There's not somebody that scares the other team, uh, not a Jermaine Jones-type figure. Hoppy has energy, which I think is good. I don't know if he scares guys on the, uh, the opposition and he also plays a position farther upfield that usually that's a, something you want from a defensive midfielder or something like that. Um, I also thought it was a very interesting game for a player like Gianluca Buzio, who I thought was really not up to the task in the first half. He was better in the second half. The whole U.S. team was better in the second half, but... I'm starting to think here that from what we've seen from Buzio, he's not quite ready for this level yet. I think he can get there, and he's a young guy, a teenager, but I'm a little mystified that Eric Williamson just doesn't seem to be a guy that Greg Berhalter rates very much. Didn't see him at all in this game. I think he'd be an upgrade over Buzio, to be honest. Uh, Roldan was brought in. And I think uh, that introduction of him and Zardis made a difference in this game. So those subs were good from Greg Berhalter, who I think is going to be happy that 
his team advanced here when it wasn't playing its very best. Um, a few other things on my mind. Daryl DK, another subpar game up front for him. He was terrific against Martinique, less so against Canada, less so in this game against Jamaica. Not great service, but uh, I think he can have a bigger influence than he did tonight. He got yanked after 60 minutes for Jossie Zardes, who I, I thought created some dangerous moments after he came on. Um, you know, you look at other parts of the field, I think the central defense, Miles Robinson, James Sands, two very young guys, were totally solid in this game. Sands has been the revelation of the tournament, I think, for the U.S., but Miles Robinson might have been even better tonight and, and made one really fantastic play uh, to cover for Sands when uh, he fell and Jamaica had a chance in the second half and, and Robinson just came back and put out the fire. So that's really encouraging, I think, for the U.S. right now. Matt Turner's been steady. And, you know, they're in the semis, you know, and this presents an interesting thing I'll talk about in a second about playing Qatar, um, <laughs> which is going to be kind of random. Uh, no central American teams in the semis of this Gold Cup, no Caribbean teams in the semis of this Gold Cup. Um, obviously, Qatar's a guest team, but Canada taking out Costa Rica uh, suggests that there's a bit of a balance of power shift happening right now in, in CONCACAF. And uh, this is one of the worst Costa Rican teams I've ever seen, I think. And this is one of the better Canada teams we've ever seen, even without their top guys. Uh, They've got some good guys playing out there. They deserve to be in the semis. Very interested to see how they fare against Mexico. A um, couple other things with the U.S. in this game. Uh, and this applies to the other quarterfinals on this field in Dallas at Jerry World. Terrible field. Uh, temporary grass surface. Uh, I understand exactly why CONCACAF does this. They got a big crowd, especially last night. Uh, with Mexico playing, but it's just not good enough. And I don't think money, which is what CONCACAF gets out of this, should ever take precedence over quality of game that results from a bad field and, and potential injury risk. It, it, it's kind of embarrassing, actually. So I hope CONCACAF thinks more deeply about this stuff in the future, because that was a terrible field down in Dallas. CONCACAF uh, just has to do better. Um, otherwise, that's kind of about it at this point. You know, with Qatar coming, uh, there's going to be a lot of questions. It seems like more and more people ask this it, whenever they realize that Qatar is in this tournament. Why is Qatar in the Gold Cup? So it's pretty straightforward. Qatar is hosting the World Cup next year. Uh, they don't need to qualify because they're hosts. They're automatically in the tournament. So they've been playing as a guest team in different confederations. Uh, Qatar played in the Copa America in 2019 in South America. They were supposed to again this year until COVID caused that to be uh, their participation to be canceled. Qatar's even playing UEFA teams when they're in World Cup qualifying and they have some teams that have open dates. Um, Qatar's playing them. They've also been playing in Asian World Cup qualifying, at least this round. 
uh, to get games in, and they use it as qualifying for the Asian Cup. Um, and Qatar's the Asian champion, so they've they're a decent team, y'all. And and I'm very curious to see if the gamblers will actually favor Qatar in this game over a U.S. B minus team, uh, because clearly Qatar can play. Uh, they do have a lot of naturalized players uh, who were not born in Qatar originally, and, and that's been part of a process when you've known for over a decade that you're going to be hosting a World Cup and you've never even qualified for one before. Uh, Qatar has put one put a team together uh, in recent years. Uh, they've naturalized some guys from countries like Portugal, where they were born, uh, Algeria, um, Sudan. Uh, I think there's a guy from France originally on this team. But uh, they all play for Qatar now. And, and they're kind of fun to watch. They don't defend very well, but they play open games. So I think we're going to see a game with the U.S. and Qatar that has more than the one goal we saw tonight against Jamaica. Uh, also an interesting storyline, Bora Militinovic, the former USA, USA coach at uh, the 94 World Cup, has been living in Qatar for years and years. He's in the U.S. for this tournament. He's been a huge part of Qatar's soccer side preparations uh, to host the World Cup, but also to get a team ready that can actually compete. And I'll be honest with you, I think Qatar, this Qatar team, is probably better than the South Africa team that hosted the World Cup in 2010. Uh, Asian champion is no joke, you know. They beat Japan and South Korea, which are legit teams on their way to winning that title in 2019. And so this is going to be a real challenge for the U.S. on Thursday. Likely final if the U.S. can win that game against Mexico awaits, but Canada may have something to say about that. I am looking forward to Thursday night and seeing both of those semifinals. And Chris will be back after that game so we can have a little two-way conversation uh, about that. And... So that will be it for me here, but we've got a great interview with Hope Solo that I think you're going to want to hear. She has a lot of interesting things to say, and she's going to take it away from here. Now, here's my interview with Hope Solo. Our guest now is one of the greatest U.S. soccer players of all time. Hope Solo won one World Cup and two Olympic gold medals in a standout career and is generally regarded as one of the best goalkeepers in history. Hope, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Grant. It's been a while. I'm very excited about uh, connecting here. The Olympics are going on. Uh, we're recording this on Saturday, right after the U.S.'s 6-1 victory over New Zealand. We're coming out first thing Monday morning. What was your reaction to this win after the opening game lost to Sweden? Oh, goodness. I don't know where to start, Grant. First off, <laughs> I need to say that my husband and I are Olympic nerds, especially Jeremy. So we are 100% in, waking up at 4.30. We did sleep in on the first game, but we still had a party. We had everyone over. We had a, a watch party for the opening match against Sweden. Um, but, but we're Olympic nerds. You know, we're actually excited for the first time to watch three-on-three -three basketball and skateboarding in the Olympics. We're, we are all in. We are... Red, white, and blue, um, pretty, pretty excited. And actually getting to share it with the babies. When we say, you know, we have two twins, a uh, boy and girl, they're 16 months old, and we'll say, soccer, you guys wanna watch soccer? And they point to the TV, 
And now Lozen, the girl, is saying, goal. <laughs> so, you know, this is like a family affair. So, anyways, in regards to this morning's game versus New Zealand, the 6-1 victory for the United States, um, it, it was expected. It's exactly what I expected um, for a number of reasons, obviously, with the poor start versus Sweden. Um, and I haven't been impressed with New Zealand. Granted, they haven't had a lot of time to train and prepare for the Olympics because of the pandemic. Um, but they don't look fit. They're not, you know, the strongest team. Um, so it was kind of a perfect second match for the United States to get back on their feet and, and start to feel the camaraderie because it didn't look good that first game. And, but what I wish I saw was zero goals in the back of the net. That was, that was tough to swallow. Um, yeah, they put the goals away, which we know the United States will do, but they can't let them in either. In the post-game comments, a lot of the U.S. players were talking about the U.S. mentality coming back, which wasn't there in that first game loss. Is that your sense as well? Well, I mean, anything can happen in the opening game. Um, Jitters, nerves, you know, even from a coaching standpoint and a manager standpoint with with Vlatko, it's his first international tournament. And I think we forget that managers and coaches, they too feel the nerves. They too... Um, take some time to get their feet wet. It's his first major tournament. So you could even see his demeanor change from the first game to the second game. He actually was coaching and on his feet this game, whereas the first game, he, I think he sat the entire game. So everything was a little bit different. And yeah, you can say there were nerves. You can say, um, you know, the mentality is back, but it was tough. You know, that first game, it was really, it was really tough. I was almost in tears on that third goal. I think I got a little choked up because there are some things that you actually can't just turn on. You can't just suddenly start marking in the box defensively. These are things that should have been grained into the defensive system, you know, probably a year and a half ago with the new coach. And so there are little things that I'm not going to say I worry. I just wish were better, especially when. The United States um, historically has the mentality, has that winning mentality, um, will find a way to win. And building upon that, we now have the best midfield in the world, the best goal scoring, you know, front three, depend, you know, not depending who starts, the best goal scorers in the world. But what has always given us a foundation is a very, very detailed and strong defense. And so that was, that was heartbreaking to see players uh, from Sweden run into the box unmarked. And that's not something that you suddenly just turn on. That, that's something that's ingrained in your habit and in your training. So that, that was hard to see. You know, I really think they're missing um, some type of organization or leader, um, a real vocal leader in the back. And I'm not going to say it worries me going forward, but I just think that's part of the United States DNA. And so to not see that, it, I was really upset. Now, I know the United States is going to win the gold medal. I really, I know that. I mean, player for player, they're the best team on the field. I do wish Germany and France were there to challenge the United States more than, um, you know, some of the other teams. I thought Netherlands would look better than what I've seen. They're letting in too many goals as well, and I don't think they look the same as they did in the 2019 World Cup. I thought Netherlands were going to be the toughest team for the United States, but I'm starting to doubt that now. It's starting to look like, and obviously a lot can change on match, match day three, but the, we could see a USA-Netherlands uh, quarterfinal game. Uh, so they've, as you said, Netherlands has, has conceded three goals in each of their first two games. 
Um, in 2008, I was covering your team at the Olympics in China. You were on that team that lost its first game in that Olympics versus Norway, came back to win the gold medal. What do you remember from that experience of rallying after losing the first game? Like what happened inside the team after that first game? Because I'm curious to know what's been going on inside that team over the last couple of days. Well, there's always a sense of inner confidence with the United States, um, win, lose, or draw. You're not going to steal that from the United States overnight. Um, it's ingrained, as I said, in our DNA. We have a, 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 a fight in us to find a way to win. Even if we're not playing great, we'll find a way to score and win. Um, so that first game back in 2008, uh, I came out for a ball. I ended up knocking out our defender, punching Lori Kolepny, our best defender in my opinion, my go-to defender, somebody I needed on the field and I trusted, and boom, I give her a concussion. They score, Norway scores, and we, we lose our best defender. I, I make a, you know, a, a bad decision or a poor play, or, or maybe I just got beat. You know, sometimes we always think that it's a bad decision or a poor play when sometimes we need to Put up our hand to the other team and a lot of times i don't think we do that we always break down where what went wrong instead of really praising the other team which we need to praise sweden when we look back at that first game but that's a whole different topic but anyways i take out our defender i give her a concussion she's out for the next game and i just remember personally you know being obviously sad for our team not thinking that we're now out of the tournament you know we never lost that sense of hope by any means, but it still just didn't feel good taking that L. And then knowing that I got scored on twice, our defense got scored on, I take out our best defender. I mean, it was, there was layers and layers and layers of, of sadness and feelings that you had to get over in three days. And I think that's the hard part is you, have, you can't sit on them, you have to get over them. But I'll never forget Pia Sundagi, our coach at the time, um, she, she let us feel like mourn, you know, she let us go back to the hotel and you have to, because if you, you have to feel the emotions, but then you have to get over them quickly. But she actually, she let me, you know, we, we had a, we had to go to the weight room, get on the bike, loosen up our legs. And she came over to me, put her arm around me and just was like, I need you the next game. Hope, you know, just get rid of it. Like she didn't even care. And that to me showed the leadership because she knew I was beating myself over the head. You know, she knew that it, that it hurt me pretty hard at letting in two goals um, and taking out our best defender. And Lori Klepney was back, you know, in two games and she was the star that she always is and the great defender that she always is. But we had to overcome those obstacles. And I think that shows character and I think it shows what teams are capable of. So if, you know, I think the United States, are, this was just a road bump. Uh, Sweden's a great team, a fantastic team. And as of right now, I think they're the best team in the tournament. Um, not player for player, but in terms of what we've seen at this point playing together as a team. So, you know, things happen, um, but you just have to find your character to get through them. And you have to have a good leader. P.S. Hyundagi put her arm around us, let us mourn, and then said, now get over it the next day in practice. So hopefully Vlako can do the same. I love Pia. Uh, we had Pia on the podcast not too long ago here from Brazil, and she's coaching Brazil in this tournament. Uh, they just had this wild 3-3 game against the Netherlands today, and uh, obviously she uh, led this team, the U.S. team, to two Olympic gold medals uh, that you were a part of. Um, Carly Lloyd started this game today. I, I know you've been close to Carly for a long time. 
She just turned 39. She's, you know, like she was a woman possessed in this game today. If you've Wasn't been in touch she with her, ever? If you've you been in touch with her at all, what are your thoughts on, on her play? Yeah, uh, you know, Carly's a very personal person, so I'm not going to reveal our conversations during the Olympics, but um, she is a very close friend of mine. She's somebody I care deeply about. She's somebody who doesn't always get the respect that she deserves, even though she has proved, proven herself time and 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 time again, scoring those big goals in big moments. And not only that, but truly doing the selfless work. I think that's what makes Carly the best teammate in the world is she's very professional, sometimes too professional. And I say that in, in jest because I'll never forget when she wasn't performing um, at her best in the 2015 World Cup up in Canada. And she was glued to watching all of the games. She was watching film. She was hydrating and kicking her legs up. And she was almost wound up too tight. And I think that's why Carly and I were always so great for one another as we balanced each other out. And I said, Carly, man, you need to get out of the hotel. Let's go, we have a day off. Let's go to the national park. Let's take the gondola right up and, and let's get out of the hotel, you need this. And she always said, you know, hope that was the best thing for me. She showed back up, I think it was the game versus China in the World Cup, and she needed to let loose. And now she's at a time in her life at 39 years old where she realizes it, it's about the journey. It's not only about your successes in life. It's about who you share them with. And those are the memories that you're going to make. And it, it makes me really sad to know that there's no fans allowed now in Tokyo because this is finally the first tournament where she was going to allow her husband to actually come to the stadium. So right. that kind of breaks my heart. Um, but she's in a really, really good place. And of course, fit and professional as ever. And she was just on fire today, you know, running her butt off, go, winning every air ball, um, great passes. She almost got a goal. She caused one goal. I mean, she she was truly the selfless player I know her to be. So you were the goalkeeper for the U.S. at the last three Olympics. How does it feel for you to watch these games at this current Olympics? Um, exactly where I want to be. You know, I think my ending with U.S. soccer was really tough. Uh, the firing and everything like that and kind of the drama and instantly being the, maybe not instantly, but being the villain of U.S. soccer. It, that part's been tough. And um, but watching the Olympics, you know, I am a firm believer that athletes as well as sports are supposed to get better and stronger and faster. So I love it. You know, I love sport. I love soccer. I love the Olympic sport. I know that I will not be the greatest goalkeeper of all time for the rest of time. And I think that's how it should be. And so I'm not sitting here with any sense of I should be there or wanting to be there even you know my life has changed so much uh since i last left the field in 2016 and you know we have privacy finally we have a sense of calm and peace in our life finally i get to pick and choose what interviews i want to do or what appearances i want to do or where to travel and i have two beautiful young children so i'm exactly where i want to be but trust me i mean the only thing I really miss is something really competitive. You know, I love to get competitive, but that's about it. <laughs> if you could change the Olympic women's soccer tournament, what would you change? Grant, um, oh, it drives me crazy that there's only 12 teams in the tournament. I, I don't understand it. I don't know how the IOC gets away with it, you know, in, in this era. 
um, how the men have 16 teams, the women only have 12. Please explain it to me. It makes no sense and it makes me so angry. Um, People used to say in my fight for equality, don't be angry, be passionate. And I say, hell no, I can be angry and I can be passionate because if we're not angry, then we don't care enough to make a, a, a change and a difference. And it's not really about us anymore, it's about the future and future generations. So when we don't see equal amount of teams, that means there's less resources by the IOC going into the women's soccer tournament than the men's soccer tournament. And when we're pushing for equality around the world, there's no explanation for it. Yeah, and that also just reminds me too, like the women's tournament, unlike the men's at the Olympics, is the best players, the senior players from those nations. And like they're putting more, they're investing more money in a tournament with 16 teams on the men's side that's basically an under 23 tournament. It's, I don't want to get you too angry, but it's kind of wild. (laughs) Well, but also from a grassroots level, if we're trying to build the women's game, then we're not seeing, I mean, the other part, okay, hang on, there's a whole other side of this. Why wasn't there any European qualification tournament? Because two of the best, respectively, number two and number four in the world, Germany and France, are not in this tournament because they didn't spend any time or money or effort to put on a qualifying tournament for the women's European nations, which means now it's diluting the tournament by not seeing France and Germany in it. And they took uh, the semifinalists from the Olympics, which obviously means you have to qualify against other regions, including the United States. So that also makes me very angry. (laughs) It's a weird one, you know, like, because you take UEFA takes the placing at the previous World Cup, but like, it's not Spain's fault, great team Spain, it's not Spain's fault that it got the US in the round of 16 at the World Cup and went out earlier than, you know, other teams. So it's, it's extremely frustrating. And from um, the grassroots level, you want to see teams like Spain in this tournament and Italy and even Nigeria. Uh, I, I believe we should have two African nations in this tournament. So, so that's tough. And obviously, like I said, Germany and France are missing. One thing I wanted to ask you about the Olympics is in comparison to the Women's World Cup, is, is there a significant difference with just how the Olympics feel or the vibe or anything like that? Major, major differences between the Olympics and the World Cup. The Olympics is more about the spectacle of the games and less about your specific sport, whereas the World Cup is solely showing everybody the beauty about our sport, about soccer. And it, it's, um, it's the pinnacle of being the best is the World Cup for your sport. Um, so for me, the World Cup was always important from that regard, but the Olympics made you feel American. It made you feel connected globally to other countries. It made you feel spirited, spirited. (laughs) How do you say that? You got it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, the Olympic Village was was beautiful to see everybody's national flags hanging from the balconies. It, It was different. It's also very exhausting to be a part of the Olympics, especially when you're in the village because you're walking three miles or, you know, to the to the cafeteria. You're stuck in traffic quite a bit. Uh, the vent, there's less security. Um, it, it, it's just a, it can be really exhausting. So you really have to know how to mentally prepare for that and how to focus. And that was tough for a lot of the younger players because you're meeting some of the best athletes from all over the world, from every sport. And you can lose your focus very quickly in the Olympics. It is interesting to me because like some sports, the athletes get done sooner. Like swimmers get done earlier in 
the Olympics, and then generally swimmers kind of go wild. Last well, and week. then it's party time. Yeah, <laughs> it's party time all over the village. You know, for like if you get to the gold medal game in women's soccer, usually it's a Thursday night game, so you get at least a couple of days <laughs> afterwards. Um, and. I guess just switching gears a little bit, could you give our listeners a sense of, of where you are right now and, and what you and your family are up to? Yeah, we, uh, we built our own home in, well, we have 60 acres in the mountains of North Carolina. So we live in the northwestern part of the states, uh, of the state of North Carolina, in the mountains. Um, we, we have privacy. We have pigs and chickens and ducks and peacocks and turkeys. We have five Dobermans. We have, um, you know a pool and a, we live on a river. So we have hiking trails and, and it's just a really healthy lifestyle. Um, the huge garden, we, we, uh, grow a lot of our own food and, and prepare a lot of our own food. Um, so th- things are good. I mean, this is kind of the life that we wanted to give for, for our kids, um, away from the hustle and bustle of the cities, which also, you know, it's important to us to, to travel and show our kids the rest of the world. So we're not hermits up here. We just have a sense of peace when we get away. <laughs> it, it's kind of wild to me that two of the most legendary players in U.S. soccer history are fairly recently retired and living in sort of remote parts of North Carolina. There's, there's you and then there's Clint Dempsey. Now, Clint lives near Pinehurst out in the woods. Uh, have you ever come into contact with Clint in North Carolina? And what's the allure of the North Carolina woods and mountains? You know, I am not surprised that Dempsey is out in the wilderness somewhere. You know, I, I always saw that. So, you know, I'm, I'm very happy for him and more power to him. No, I do not run across him anywhere here in the state. Uh, but I think the lure is, well, for us anyways, um, we were open. I know that happiness is a state of mind. I've lived in so many different states playing soccer. I've lived in so many different countries. Um, I can be happy anywhere. It, it truly is about your your mental state and, and kind of the people you have around you. Um, but I think the lure for us was we wanted to find a place because we knew we were going to start a family and we wanted to find a place that had great universities. So we started to look for acreage and property in Charlotte. And then when you look for land, obviously you get more and more rural. So that's why we are here in the mountains and not in Charlotte. But, you know, we have good universities. We can take the kids to, to college football games and soccer games and basketball games. And North Carolina hosts a lot of college sports. So we kind of have everything we need here besides great sushi. There is no good seafood here. I miss <laughs> Seattle for the seafood. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, You've done a, a lot of good television work in recent years for places like BN Sports. Uh, you were doing stuff for the BBC, I think, during the Women's World Cup. Have you enjoyed that? Do you want to keep doing more TV? You know, I, I don't necessarily love the limelight or love television. I love analyzing the game. Um, you know, as a goalkeeper, it was one of my best strengths was to organize and put, read the game and pull players in and and I'm, I, I like to be able to share that knowledge and, and really break down the game. It's kind of sad to me that, um, in all honesty, that I haven't had opportunities here in the United States because of my lawsuits um, against U.S. soccer that continue. Um, so I, I haven't had the opportunity to work for um, a lot of the, well, any of the U.S. women's national team coverage games, which is really sad because um, I, I do have a, a great um, 
a, a great, ex- well, I have, what, what am I trying to say here? I've done really well for great networks across the world, including the BBC. So I've done really good, um, but I haven't had the opportunities here in the United States. So that aspect has been really difficult to be blackballed from American soccer um, here in the United States. But, uh, you know, life goes on. We, uh, I'm doing the things that I want to do. And to be quite honest, I really enjoyed working for the European networks. And I re- really enjoy working for the UK because in the, in the UK, when I worked for the BBC, it was truly less about the big name players and the commercialization of the sport. And it was more about the beauty of the game. So I really enjoyed having the opportunity to work overseas in the game. Yeah, also too, it's really interesting. One of the big changes in the last year that I've noticed is women's club soccer from Europe is now much more available on our televisions here. I mean, for the podcast recently, we had on the people who run uh, ATA Sports, and they're the ones who have gotten the English Women's League and the French Women's League and now Spain on American televisions. Um, I'd love to see you there doing stuff. Like, if, like, and obviously you've done great work with the men's game too. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I've had the opportunity to really break down the men's game at the highest level, working for BN and obviously doing La Liga. So, you know, analyzing uh, some of the best teams in the world in Spanish football has been really incredible. And it's pushed me to the next level. And my colleagues at BN have, have been spectacular. And I work with some of the best men and women you know in the sport and they taught me a lot and um yeah we'll we'll see what's out there for opportunities but i think for the most part um i just love the game you know i I love the game i love to break down the game and i'll never stop watching it men or women so i i do like la liga more than i like the epl but hey that's just me (laughs) We saw more news this week about the U.S. women's national team's equal pay lawsuit against U.S. soccer. They they filed a formal appeal of the judge's summary judgment that threw out their case for equal pay last year. Am I accurate in saying that your stance is that the current U.S. players could have and should have been even tougher with U.S. soccer in their approach against the Federation? All I can tell you is the truth, Grant. We sat in a room together back in 2015 before we set out to, to fight for equal pay. And we all looked at one another in our eyes and, and we asked one another, you know, do we understand the repercussions? Do we understand the sacrifices? Do we understand that we may not get paid, that our health insurance might get taken away, that we might have to go on strike? Whatever it takes, this is what we are set out to do for future generations. And in the end, um, we were divided and conquered um, by U.S. Soccer Federation, by the leaders at the United States Soccer Federation, by our individual agents who the president of U.S. Soccer went directly to agents to tell players, hey, you know, don't work with that particular executive director of the Players Association. We'll never get a CBA done. We'll never get a contract done with him because he's not agreeable, which, by the way, you don't want somebody agreeable. You want somebody who's fighting for you. And sure enough, um, they picked us off one by one, U.S. soccer. They knew exactly what they were doing. And in the end, um, we operated in a sense of fear. I got fired the executive director who led the way and taught us our rights about equal pay in Title VII. He got fired shortly thereafter. And then guess what happened? The current team signed a contract that was less than equal. I don't understand that. I'll never understand that. 
um, because we said we would never do that. We said we would never sign a CBA until we got equal pay. And with their new executive director in charge, um, with the current players leading the way, they did exactly that. They signed a contract that was less than equal. And their case, you know, it got dismissed before the judge even heard the case. It got dismissed in summary judgment. And the appeal just went through, which is great, but it could take two to three years to reach the appellate court. And even when it reaches the appellate court, it's a pretty conservative court right now as it stands. So there's no guarantee. Um, you know, I, I was the first athlete in history to file a lawsuit against their employer for equal pay in the Title VII. And it's still the only pending lawsuit right now in federal court. And, you know, all we can do is learn from the mistakes of the player's attorneys um, because it did get dismissed. And it's no easy win by any means, but we have to make sure in my particular case that we cross all our T's, dot all of our I's, and make sure that we don't make the same mistakes because there has to be a precedent set for equal pay in Title VII going forward. So even if there's a settlement, that doesn't set a precedent in the courts. So it's very, very important in my case right now in federal court. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, hopefully we will uh, be in court one day soon and actually get a judgment from the judge. And we're in the Northern District of California for federal court. I was going to ask, like, what do you want to see happen? Do you, uh, so you don't you would you do not want to see an out of court settlement? Yeah, I think a settlement would be great for the current players. I don't think it sets a precedent going forward necessarily, maybe for only U.S. women's national team players, but not for every other sport, not for women across the workforce in other areas um, and other occupations. And it certainly doesn't take care of some of the former players who helped with this fight in 2015. I think that's really important is, is the ones who really started this fight in 2015, players like Christy Rampone and Abby Wambach, big name players and Shannon Box, Lauren Cheney, these are the players who started the fight. You know, they were on that 2015 winning World Cup team. We were the ones who dedicated ourselves to the fight. And in the end, and this is what people don't understand, is this class action does not include these players. It does not include myself in the class action. So that's really tough to see. Um, and obviously, it's because the players took so long to file their class action, so it only goes back a certain amount of years to cover those players. Um, but that's, that's really tough because it was always important to us to make sure that the players who started the fight would see their back pay because those are the ones who didn't get paid for a number of years equal to the men according to law. You obviously ran for U.S. soccer president in 2018. Do you have any interest in going down that road again? Absolutely not. Never again. <laughs> um, you know, I, I made a commitment during that. I mean, obviously, it, it was hard to get the nominations. Um, and people wanted my voice. The reason why I was nominated to run in the election is because people wanted my voice. They knew my voice was very important. And I, I went in strong. Um, I stayed true to myself and true to everything I was fighting for. Um, I didn't think I was going to win by any means. But it was very necessary to have my voice involved. And throughout that experience, I learned so many more issues than I ever wanted to hear about soccer in the United States. The alienation of certain groups, you know, and the underrepresented communities and how expensive it is for so many youth soccer coaches to get other players involved and how, you know, so many kids across the United States think it's a rich white kid sport. And our sport is supposed to be welcoming. It's supposed to be the world's game. 
And it was heartbreaking. Honestly, going through that process was so heartbreaking to see how many people we push away from, from our beautiful game. And I made a commitment that I would do everything I could to, to change U.S. soccer. And I don't think many people know about this grant, but I actually took it to the U.S. OPC, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And I was able to reverse a lot of the issues that U.S. soccer um, wasn't obeying, like the Ted Stevens Act and the 20% athlete representation rule, as well as their relationship with Soccer United Marketing, which had a lot of um, conflicts of interest and a lack of transparency. These are the issues that I had been fighting for three years since the election behind the scenes. And every step of the way through our hearing with the US OPC, US soccer was forced to change their conflict of interest policy, their relationship with some, and uh, abiding by the Ted Stevens Act. And in the end, I feel like I won for a lot of people in our soccer community. However, I still think there's a lot of room to welcome the game to many more youth players. It is interesting. The relationship with Soccer United Marketing and U.S. soccer was such a big topic during the 2018 presidential election. But only recently did we see U.S. soccer announce that they weren't going to continue their relationship with Soccer United Marketing uh, moving forward. So uh, stuff that was coming up then, yeah, you're right, is is changing. And, and we're seeing now not just U.S. soccer, but other uh, governing bodies being required to have a, a higher percentage of athlete or former athlete representation on the board. Absolutely. Um, and we worked hand in hand with the USOPC as well as United States senators to make sure that there would be an oversight committee that would implement these changes. And we actually worked recently um, on a new bill that's being entered into the Senate um, to pay all Olympic athletes, regardless of what NGB you're from, equally both on you know the support side of things, whether that's travel and equipment, as well as pay. And that's just now being introduced into the Senate, and it is bipartisan, and we worked really hard on this bill, and we're, we're pretty excited to introduce it. Interesting. I feel like I should ask you about the National Soccer Hall of Fame. Um, I... I think you should have been an obvious first ballot Hall of Famer and you haven't gotten in after two votes, which for me is embarrassing for the Hall of Fame. I am told that based on the new voting system, there's a decent chance you could get in next year. But what do you make of all of this? I mean, I was heartbroken at first and then shocked the second time and then started to laugh about it. I've gone through kind of the whole gamut of emotions. Um, it, when it first, you know, uh, when everybody thought I'd be a first ballot, I actually got a call with an apology from the head of the Hall of Fame um, who said, I, I'm very embarrassed. And this is one of the reasons why we're changing the system and you will be in next year. And fast forward a year later and I still wasn't in. And then it was crickets. Everybody was silent. Nobody even wanted to touch it. Nobody wanted to talk about it. They just wanted to just kind of ignore it. And I thought that was irresponsible, honestly, of the media to not even touch it. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm done. There's really nothing left to say. I think at this point, it sucks. It sucks because let's say I'm a third-year ballot, then there's going to be players who will always be ranked above me. I have every record, you know, worldwide, you know, men, men's and women's shutout record. You can't take away my record. So I think that's, that's where I stand now is... It's laughable, it's a joke, it's political, and at the end of the day, nobody can take away my, my records. And 
Uh, so who knows what's going to happen next year. Um, I'm upset. You know, I, I, I hate the politics in sports. I really do. Um, I wish it was about the numbers and the records. I, I don't care who likes me and who doesn't like me. I know that I gave it my all on the field. Um, maybe I did things a different way and people didn't like that. Um, but how come it's celebrated this day and age? I was a poor sport because I was pissed about losing because I wanted to do everything I could for our country to win when I had teammates flying down to Rio after we, we, we lost and partied. And in this day and age, now you have Nike commercials who celebrate women athletes who get angry, who celebrate women athletes who are poor sports. But when you're the tip of the spear, when you're one of the first people who, you know, women um, who said I should have been on the field back in 2007, you start to, uh, you take a lot of hits. You know, the tip of the spear takes a lot of hits. And I've taken a lot of hits and I'm, I'm sick and tired of it, to be honest, Grant. So here's a question. If you get elected to the Hall of Fame next year, will you accept it? Oh, goodness. I, I, I have no idea, Grant, the emotions that I will go through. You know, like I said, I'll be a three-year inductee instead of a first-year inductee. And it, it, it puts my name down a list of players that I should probably be in front of. And basically, you're classifying me um, at a lower level. And, and that sucks. You know, it, it really sucks. I'm, I'm not getting what I, I believe my records speak for themselves. So... Um, it's not about believing I deserve it. It's about being the best in the world and proving it on the field. So it does suck. And I have no idea my emotions if, if I get that phone call. I have no idea if I'm going to start crying. If yeah, I have no idea, honestly. I just take it one day at a time. I would be interested to hear your speech if you did, if you did accept it. <laughs> just throwing, throwing that out there. Um, so you have always been willing to call publicly for changes in the game. We've talked about a fair amount of stuff earlier in this interview with the Olympics, things like that. Are there any other specific areas in the soccer world or women's soccer where you think change really needs to happen now? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a ton, Grant. I don't want to go down the list, but um, yeah, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm fighting for what I can, but it's hard um, to fight for some of these issues. You know, we, we have extended national team programs that aren't good enough on, on, for U.S. soccer. You know, we're one of the few programs that don't have a, a, a women's Paralympic feeder team. Um, we, the U.S. deaf team is not an extended national team program. Um, so there are a lot of issues. So when you have um, a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization, the money should be put back into the sport. We should be opening up the game to different communities. We shouldn't be looking for players who only play for MLS feeder clubs. We need to find the LeBron James of Akron, Ohio in our sport. And we can't do that when we're only looking at these high dollar clubs and these high dollar tournaments. So there are a lot of issues in our sport and I don't know how to solve them. I've tried, but it, it is very, very, very difficult when you feel like you're fighting sometimes by yourself. Uh, I'm, and I'm not saying we don't all want change. So many people want change, but we don't know where to go to, to fight for them. And that's why uh, my hearing with the USOPC enabled us uh, to make a lot of these changes. And, and I'm going to share with you that letter someday that shows um, the exact changes that we were able to make. But I, I think we need to see people, you know, actually, oh, man, it sucks because we actually have to push things through the court system. And that takes time, energy, and money. And that's very difficult to do. But that's the only areas I see that are powerful enough to scare U.S. soccer into creating the changes we need in our sport.
we're winding down here with Hope Solo. Really appreciate you taking this much time. Uh, do you have any interest in coaching? Uh, it'd have to be the perfect job. I love coaching goalkeepers and I love coaching defense and it might have to be my alma mater um, or a division one team or maybe a short four month season since I have a family back at home, but um, it, it's not off the table, but I wouldn't want to be a head coach. Nope. I would stick to the goalkeepers and I'd stick to defending. <laughs> and do you have a sense, you mentioned earlier that your, your kids are into soccer. Are, are they they're still very young. Are, are, are they interested in playing potentially? Oh man, I think we have a Pavarotti on our hands with the boy. He's got this huge voice on him. They love music. They dance to rock music. They love Kev- Kenny Hoopla. It, it's, it's, it's wild to see their personalities grow. Who knows what they're going to be into. And my husband doesn't want them to play sports. He wants them to be, you know, astronauts or engineers or scientists. <laughs> Okay, cool. Um, and just to wrap up, I mean, like, you're going to be watching the Olympics the rest of the way here. Um, you want to see this U.S. team win as much as possible, win this gold medal, right? I'd be heartbroken if they did anything less because that program, that team is built upon greatness and they are the best team in the tournament. So for them to do anything less than win gold would would, would be a, a disappointment to the people who came before, but also to our country because they truly are the best team. So if they don't get it done, then there's something going on managerial or something going on mentally or emotionally. Um, but they truly are physically and talent wise, the best team. So yeah, I'd be, I'd be really crushed if they don't, if they don't win, I'd be pissed too. (laughs) (laughs) Hope Solo is one of the greatest U S soccer players of all time. Hope. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Grant. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Hope Solo as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Okay.